0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. So, we felt it necessary to do kind of an urgent broadcast about the impending or potentially impending war with Iran. Robbie and I have been Discussing this ever since Trump got elected, all the kind of maneuvering that Trump has been doing in his office with his administration, his personal actions, who he's been surrounding himself with. First, let me introduce our um, guest, which is Mike Prizner, my partner, um, producer of Empire Files, co-host of the podcast Eyes Left, with another anti-war veteran, Spencer Rapone. Mike is an uh, Iraq war veteran turn anti-imperialist, and he has some really crucial and unique insight on the third iteration of the war in Iraq that Trump is now launching, as well as the potential war with Iran. So before we get into all of what's going on, Robbie, why don't you set the stage for us and give us some context about the last 48 hours by talking about what Trump has done since he's gotten elected?
1: So, I mean, as everybody probably already knows who's been following Um, our podcast, and just in general, these uh, pushes for war in the Middle East, Um, Iran has been something that has been looming over our heads uh, for over, you know, almost 20 years now. I mean, specifically the idea that the next major war was going to be in Iran. I'm going to go over later in this podcast how so much of the propaganda we're hearing now is direct echo of the Bush era, Um, And it's very clear that it is, that it's essentially like the same forces, the same people, even in some cases. But just since the Trump administration has gone in office, we have seen what is literally a rolling back the clock to the Bush era of the way that the Trump administration has decided to deal with Iran. And actually, arguably, in many instances, more hawkish, more hardline, um, less compromising than the Bush administration was. Um, with, in terms of their position towards Iran. And I really think that needs to sink in for people because we like to look back at the Bush administration as being the most hawkish, war-hungry, crazy, unhinged neocon administration that we've ever seen. Now, if you actually measure how the, how the Bush administration treated Iran compared to how the Trump administration is, there's a clear increase in the hawkishness now, I, I think, and, and that's not an exaggeration at all, that's very, very clear. But just in the last three years since Trump has been in office, we knew he campaigned on the idea of pulling out of the Iranian nuclear agreement. So we knew you know, that he was definitely going to go down that road, at least of pulling back or reversing whatever supposed progress Obama made in that direction. So that wasn't a surprise when he did that. But I think most people also don't know is that even in his campaign transition team, he had many, many anti-Iran hardliners, uh, in some cases, actual PNAC neocons that were helping shape his campaign platform and even his transition. So he had people like James Woolsey, Newt Gingrich, Mike Pompeo is classically an extreme anti-Iranian hardliner. Um, He even had neocons like Frank Gaffney and Michael Ledeen that he was using talking points from who are... Classically, some of the most anti-Iran people that we've ever heard speak publicly about Iran. You know, basically, borderline genocidal worldview on what they want to do with Iran. And then we also know that Sheldon Adelson, who talked about nuking Iran, was one of Trump's biggest donors. So this is all going into his administration. Um, he drastically increased his sanctions on Iran as the quote-unquote pressure campaign. Uh, that which they like to call it, which is a plan directly laid out by a neocon think tank in DC called the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, that basically was formed after 9-11 to put pressure on Iran. This is a think tank almost entirely dedicated to the idea of Iranian regime change. Um, and then when the Yemen thing really exploded... Um, all the Houthi rebels in Yemen were immediately characterized by the Trump administration uh, as Iran proxies. They have no agency. This is all. This conflict is all being fueled by Iran, and then this sort of sort of narrative grew into this idea of Iranian imperialism. You'll even hear some leftists talk about it that way, but more on the sort of neoliberal centrist side, this idea that Iranian you know, Iranian regional power, that it's this powerful regional power that has its tentacles in all these different countries. And it's a narrative that largely springs from the Trump era. But it's a narrative that most of the DC media political class actually believe, including, you know, neoliberals, like I was saying, it's not just a right wing thing. So now we have that sort of creeping in the background. Of course, later on, we knew that, you know, these Saudi oil tankers got allegedly attacked, slash bombed. We really don't know what actually happened to them. One of them might have actually hidden some kind of uh, debris or rock in the water, um, according to like the actual investigation. But there was so much of a push to try to blame those on Iran, and not just the Houthis, Abbey, but also the Revolutionary Guard. The U.S. government said that the actual Revolutionary Guard was the one who tried to plant a landmine on this Japanese Saudi oil tanker. Now, the owner of that actual tanker, who was a Japanese captain, said that they never actually even got bombed. But for some reason, Saudi Arabia and the United States government continued to push forward with that narrative. So this is all in the backdrop leading up to this. And the biggest event that happened since all that, Abby, was the shootdown of the U.S. drone that was in an Iranian airspace that we say wasn't, um, that it wasn't in Iranian airspace. And Of course, uh, that seemed like it could have been a flashpoint for war, and thank God that it didn't end in some kind of attack on Iran. But that's basically the backdrop for the last 48 to 72 hours of where we are now, and things have escalated to a point where, I I mean, it's it's truly, truly frightening. So why don't you tell us what's going on now?
0: Right, and thank you for providing that context, because it's really crucial to understand that The Trump administration and, of course, um, previous administrations have been waging war with Iran, right? I mean, sanctions are war, these constant. War games that the U.S. taunts Iran with, the the surrounding of the country with thousands of troops, dozens if not hundreds of U.S. military bases flying, you know, um, into the Iranian airspace. Um, All of these things are acts of war. It's a miracle that we haven't gone into a war with Iran based on the constant provocations that are being committed by the U.S. empire as it stands. So let's talk about the last... 72 hours. I'm not sure when this random contractor was killed. We have no idea who he was, what he was doing. I find it funny that we still kind of pretend like these contractors are over there, like fixing roofs and shit. And God knows what's going on. I mean, what is this guy? Who is he? What was he doing there? Um, Let's just really
1: quickly... They're, they're being so vague about that, Abby, that right, we don't I even know. know. Yeah, we have, it's like not saying that he doesn't exist, but he might as well not exist because it's like they're releasing so few details about it and we're just supposed to suck it up and be like, okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, just the, the fact that, just the fact that there's so many contractors there, you know, so that's just really disturbing in general, the privatization of these wars. What are these contractors doing? What are they? Who are they? Who are they working for? So that happened, right? This random contractor gets killed by an unknown missile. Of course, it was blamed on Iraqi militia, Kataib Hezbollah, an Iraqi militia that helped fight against ISIS in the, in the territory Um, which was part of the Iraqi security forces and also arose out of the resistance to the U.S. occupation of Iraq, which was aided by Iranian forces because they were asked to do so. In response to this attack on the contractor, the U.S. bombed and killed 25 people, Iraqis, wounded 55 more, um, and the U.S. media and establishment just inherited ad nauseum that this was an Iranian-backed militia. You even had people like Tulsi Gabbard actually going as far as saying it was an Iranian militia, completely removing the fact that they were Iraqis. Iraqis responded by storming the embassy, breaching the perimeter in protest. Um, everyone across the board, of course, repeating the claim this was an Iranian-backed militia. You it's Iran all ass- ass- uh, Iraqis have no agency, even though they've been calling for the U.S. to leave and stop bombing their country for the last 30 years. Trump then in an unprecedented fashion, orders the drone strike of a top Iranian general, um, Qassem Soleimani, a Shia military leader at the Baghdad airport, bombing this dude extrajudicially, assassinating a guy in broad daylight at the fucking airport in Baghdad. And that wasn't the end of the provocations. I mean, Trump then killed six more people bombing another Iraqi PMU um, unit. So ever since that happened, Trump has been ranting and raving continuously on Twitter about how he's brazenly going to commit more war crimes by bombing 52 cultural sites in Iran, threatening increasing aggression and attacks, saying he's going to use our trillions of dollars worth of military equipment to bomb civilians. Then juxtapose that with the Hezbollah spokesperson, Nasrallah, who's representing the axis of resistance, saying the opposite. He's saying there's going to be no civilians targeted. Any civilians killed will only serve to help Trump's agenda. And of course, we know that all of this is going to change, Robbie, once Americans are killed. The Democrats and all the so-called resistance leaders and anyone who's giving this mealy mouth condemnation will immediately change course. They'll immediately adopt wholeheartedly the Trump administration narrative as soon as people are targeted, as soon as Americans are killed abroad. So Trump is goading a war like I've never seen since the Iraq war, right? And a response from Iran so that he could just justify whatever bloodshed potential war he's wanting here. Let's get Mike's um, input right here on the new developments on this assassination. The fact that Soleimani was in Iraq, allegedly for a mediation attempt. And also just kind of this narrative, Mike, that um, Soleimani was this, you know, criminal who was responsible for the deaths of thousands and hundreds of civilians. You see every single person, including every Democratic contender for the 2020 race, preempting their mealy mouth condemnations with this absurd charge.
2: Yeah, well, I think there's a few uh, things you could get into there. I mean, first of all, you're right. I mean, Soleimani was in Iraq specifically for a a peace dialogue, a dialogue to settle tensions between factions in the country, uh, invited there by the U.S.-backed Iraqi government. Um, so it's almost like a mafia-style killing. Like, you know, hey, come to this meeting so we could talk about uh, settling disputes and by sitting all around the table together, uh, it was really just a pretext to assassinate him. So I think that very much. Plays into kind of the larger narrative of how how great of a war crime this was. Can
1: I just so I stop you there, really quick? Sure. So the the actual Iraqi uh, prime minister who who apparently was the source for saying that that was what the meeting was about. Do you think that that he played any nefarious role in this, or do you think he was legitimately trying to do peace talks with him, and the Americans intervened and decided to like turn this meeting into a mafia hit? Mm-hmm.
2: Right. I think that the, the prime minister of Iraq is a very tenuous, precarious position to be in. And so I feel that he probably had no idea that this was the plan okay. um, and has has an interest in balancing the weights of the different political forces in the country uh, to be able to remain in power. Um, so I don't I think that this was a completely unilateral uh, U.S. decision. Um, you know, I think that a, a little too much has been made about the fact that the United States informed Israel of this attack before it happened, uh, and you know it, they told Israel they were going to do it, but they didn't tell U.S. Congress was going to do it. I think that's been misconstrued a bit into that. You know, the U.S. was doing this for Israel, and the and Israel was a part of this decision making process. I think that was just purely like a tactical thing, right? I mean, Israel is also bombing these same forces in Iraq, and for you know the U.S., it was in the U.S. interest for Israel to be aware of this uh, to be able to participate in what was ever uh, to come next, and so. Uh, I some things have also been said about how this was for Saudi Arabia, serving Saudi Arabia's interests. I think it's first it's, we need to kind of clearly explain that at the at the U.S. doesn't act in the interests of anyone else, any foreign power. And this is in a lot of ways like a right wing talking point. In fact, there were like neo Nazis that tried to join the anti war demonstrations with placards saying this thing that war, no war for Israel, and Israel lies, Americans die, and all this stuff. The U.S. imperialism acts 100% in its own narrow self-interest for the military-industrial complex, for the fossil fuel industry, for the banks, and, uh, and for the, the Pentagon generals who see larger world conflict with Russia and China as on their agenda in the next decade or so. Um, and so I think that you know, it's, it's important to point out that we don't the U.S. government isn't serving any foreign interests. This is the interest of the U.S. capitalist class engaging with uh, this kind of conflict in Iran. And so I think really, I mean, before we get into all these other things, the situation is is that there's a, a faction of the political establishment, the military establishment in the Pentagon, and the economic establishment, who all see great interest in going to war with Iran. And in fact, going to war with Iran sooner rather than later, before Iran is more equipped to go to war with the United States. Um, and so this faction has always existed. You know, it, turned, it creates think tanks to turn out propaganda. It has, you know, general you know, Pentagon generals writing papers and policy papers about the, how the U.S. needs to prepare for war with Iran. Um, so there's, this is a faction that exists. We know Pompeo is part of it. And of course, a section of the financial establishment, those uh, who own the oil companies and the banks and all, all the things that will benefit from a war with Iran. And so this faction in the military establishment has always pushed whoever's in power to go to war with Iran. Ever since 1979, every president has been pressured by these same forces uh, in the establishment to, to attack Iran and start a war with Iran. In large part, presidents have resisted all-out war with Iran. They've done other acts of aggression that this faction wants to have happen, like sanctions, uh, like assassination of nuclear scientists, and all the things that have happened over the course of the past, you know, more than 30 years, 40 years. Now that we have a situation where we have Trump, who is just a complete narcissist, who doesn't make any political calculation based on, Anything other, you know, anything in terms of most presidents make calculations based on what is best collectively for the U.S. ruling class, for the U.S. capitalist class. So deciding, Obama deciding not to go to war with Iran wasn't like, oh, people are going to die when they shouldn't. It was, is this going to be good for American imperialism to go to war with Iran? And of course, uh, it would probably go bad for American imperialism. Um, And so that's usually the calculation the president makes. Is this good for our overall geostrategic interests uh, and world hegemony? So now that there's, Trump there, and you know Bush very likely would have gone to war with Iran if the war in Iraq had gone well. We know that that was kind of in their plans, but yes. because they got so humiliated in Iraq, they kind of stopped that plan. So there's the same forces under Bush that are now trying to push Trump to go to war in Iran. Who, uh, because he's just a complete narcissist, doesn't care about the implications for anyone except how he's going to look on television doing it. You know, doesn't care if it's going to blow up in the face of the U.S. empire. Uh, doesn't care if it's going to you know result in a military defeat. he Doesn't care about any of that. He just cares about if he looks like a strong man, a strong leader, especially when he's getting lots of bad press, something that he would want to uh, distract from. So this kind of deadly cocktail of a very organized wing of the establishment that's pushing every president for these things. And then a president who's just such an empty vessel, who's just like cracked out on whatever drug he's on half the time, uh, who's the only person that has to say, yes, now we'll, I'll, I'll put my signature on this thing that you want to do. Um, it's put all of the millions of people's lives in the U.S. and in the Middle East at the mercy of this weird kind of dumb combination our country functions on.
1: I definitely agree with you about this idea that Saudi Arabia and Israel are guiding this foreign policy decision-making is extremely reductive. It really does sort of remove agency from the U.S. empire. But at the same time, um, one of the most consistent things, and and I've been sort of thinking about this more lately, that one of the most consistent follow-throughs that Trump seems to have been doing since he's been in office is carrying out the agendas of hardline Zionist people in the United States, not even specifically the Israeli government. But people like right. Sheldon Adelson and some of these neocon think tanks like the Foundation for Defense or Democracy, and I think that also makes it very dangerous is for some reason or another, Trump's one of his most consistent carrying out of policy has to do with going against Iran, squeezing them, and also propping up Israel and and giving Israel these things that they'd wanted for so long that they didn't even get with the two previous administrations. So that's that creates another really potent and toxic, Dynamic here as well, I think. Um, when you have people like Sheldon Adelson in the mix,
0: yeah, I wanted to also jump in there and just say Trump has done a lot of unprecedented things that were kind of considered inconceivable before this. I mean, just the fact that he followed through on moving the embassy, you know what I mean, to Jerusalem. I mean, the fact that that was done when every other president kind of just gave their vocal support for it. But Trump followed through, I think, is a really, really speaks to what you're saying. But not only that, the fact that he directly bombed Assad, something that Obama didn't even want to do. Right. The fact that he yes. went through with the Venezuela coup operation, tried to implant Juan Do, given the fact that Anyone who knows and understands Venezuela and the strength of the Bolivarian Revolution could have told him this is not going to succeed in the way that you think it is. So, yeah, it almost seems like it's not only just the hardline Zionist, but like the hardline everyone and just being willing to take it further than anyone else will. Going back to the whole narcissistic personality disorder mixed with a deadly cocktail of just extemporaneousness um, to the point of where he's so unstable and unpredictable but at the same time he's so attention hungry and is willing to do anything
1: he's even willing to go on tv after he gets rid of john bolton and act like john bolton was too much of a pussy for him and he didn't want to actually go through with the venezuela coup and that trump wanted to go further so that's (laughs) that's how crazy he is whether that's true or not i'm you know i don't know if trump's just being a braggart constantly But that's another thing that I think we need to unpack a little bit here is this idea that all this agency is being removed, not only from the Iraqi people who have reason to be upset that a million, you know, Iraqis were murdered um, during the war, but also this idea that the American empire and even Trump himself has no agency. I mean, I even see people saying that Bolton is somehow responsible for this.
0: Yeah, it's it's all the neocons.
1: I mean, obviously, Trump... I don't think he he has a serious agenda to do regime change in Iran. I don't think he cares necessarily. I do believe that the agenda is coming from the neocons, but the idea that he um, is merely just being outmaneuvered by them—I've seen that framing that he's you know that they've put pulled the wool over his eyes. This kind of framing, I think, just really removes agency from him and gives him a pass. And I don't think people would have been doing that during the Obama administration. I mean there's definitely a dynamic of neocon foreign policy hardliners trying to push obama into things but when he was quote-unquote outmaneuvered by them people didn't give obama a pass and be like oh man he was outmaneuvered by the neocons that's fucking sucks like that sucks that he's had to bomb libya because he was outmaneuvered by these goddamn (laughs) neocons too bad like why is that framing i mean And I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but I want to hear from both you guys about that framing, why that's so pervasive right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just like a difference. It's like um, uh, there's a quote from someone I can't remember, but that like, you know, it's arguments of different strategy. Of accomplishing the same goal. Every president has wanted to uh, destroy the Iranian government, uh, overthrow the Iranian government. You know, all these countries that are independent countries are on the chopping block for U.S. imperialism. There's just a debate within Washington about how to go about that. Yeah. And so the quote I'm referring to is that like, you know, the debate among uh, the strategies uh, for effective U.S. foreign policy within Washington is the same as the Nazi officers debating uh, the strategic effectiveness of Hitler's military strategy. They ultimately have the same goal as just a question of. Uh, you know, how they want to go about it. Do they want to go about it slowly with sanctions, rapidly with the military escalation um, and and things of that nature? And so I think that, you know, one of the the components of this, too, is that just because there doesn't seem to be a clear regime change operation for Iran, right? That, oh, there's these people on the ground that they're trying to bring to power, that this is part of, you could see that there's a larger strategy to overthrow the Islamic Republic. You know, the the regime, actual regime change and having a, you know, pro-U.S. government come to power uh, in the place of an independent, you know, nationalist government like we have in Iran, like in Iraq, like in Syria... That, I think, is kind of like a secondary goal of U.S. imperialism. The primary goal is just to destroy the country. does There doesn't have to be a regime change plot with Iran if the U.S. really just wants to be able to bomb Iran to, to destroy it. Same thing with, with Syria. When it became clear once the intervention of Russia... Uh, in Syria, when it became clear that Assad was not going to fall, that you know, ISIS was not going to be able to march on Damascus and that Assad's popularity was going to prevent, um, prevent the regime change plan that the Obama administration had hoped for, prevent that from going through, they didn't stop bombing Syria and they didn't withdraw. They said, well, we're not going to be able to overthrow the Syrian government. We're just going to try to destroy Syria as much as possible. So making these independent nations crushed countries, like making Iraq a crushed country, making Syria a crushed country, that's sets it back decades in terms of its economic and military development, that's, that works out well for U.S. imperialism, too. Absolutely. And so I think that one of the one of the scary, th- you know, I, there's the latest news that's happened is that there is this leaked document that I think The Washington Post got showing that the U.S. is preparing to remove its troops from Iraq. You know, that was a demand of the, a section of the Iraqi parliament. Uh, I just do want to say that, you know, there's a lot of news about how the Iraqi parliament voted, you know, 170 to zero for U.S. troops to leave. The Iraqi parliament is over 300 seats. Uh, the Most of them boycotted this vote. Uh, the Kurdish and, and other forces boycotted the parliament vote on whether or not U.S. troops should leave. So that would give the U.S. leverage to stay and say it wasn't a legitimate democratic vote. Um, but the fact that this document has come out showing that the U.S. may be preparing to withdraw U.S. troops from Iraq as the Iraqi the Prime Minister has demanded. I, I think that's, of course, good. U.S. troops should be removed from Iraq, but I wouldn't don't say wouldn't say it would be a retreat from this current situation. If the U.S. wants to wage a war against Iran, um, they want that war to be a massacre from the air and from the sea, right? Why would if they were going to start a major bombing war against Iran, why would they want U.S. troops in the very place they were already defeated yeah. by Iraqi forces alone? I mean, the fact that the, all these U.S. soldiers would just be sitting ducks in Baghdad easily able to be taken out in large numbers by Iranian and Iraqi forces if the U.S. were to start bombing Iran. I think it was a it's it's a scary sign if the U.S. is going to make this big concession and remove U.S. troops from Iraq. um, We should be very vigilant about it being a pretext for a major bombing war against the country.
1: I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I I didn't think of it that way until you just said it. But yeah, the fact that they're putting more troops into other areas in the Middle East, like Kuwait, and and, yep. and they're planning to remove all the troops in Iraq. That should that should scare everybody. It does seem odd. The last thing Trump wants is some kind of situation where American soldiers are sitting ducks. It could have almost happened over the you know this last week. We saw the protesters almost breaching the embassy windows. I mean that was actually a pretty crazy video. Trump is actually lucky in a way for PR reasons that they didn't you know actually break down some of those windows. If there's any video out there of American soldiers shooting protesters, um, even that, that would have really, really exploded into a much worse situation. But I guess that was enough to prompt Trump to want to assassinate this general.
0: Yeah, Contact Mike has been in- a bunch of soldiers in the last like 48 hours, um, dozens of soldiers who have reached out to him trying to get conscientious objector status, trying to inquire about how they can... Effect from the military. If indeed a war does take place, a lot of them have said that their bags are packed. You know, we've seen videos coming out of dozens, if not hundreds, of soldiers at these airports ready to deploy. Where are they going? Are they going to Kuwait? What is happening here? I think that we're kind of missing the point if we're all celebrating the fact that they're departing from Iraq, although they should be. Um, Something else is going on here, and we'd be kind of naive to think that this is over and that the U.S. is going to retreat here. I wanted to just debunk one more kind of talking point that's really pervasive, as I mentioned in the beginning, this notion that... Soleimani was a terrible killer responsible for, quote, the deaths of thousands, if not hundreds of Americans. And you see everyone parodying this before anything that you can condemn Trump on, whether it's Democrats or the so-called opposition media figures. I think the thing that's being missed the most, even though this has indeed unified Iran in a way that I have never seen before in my short life, you know, we saw this funeral with millions of Iranians taking to the streets to mourn Soleimani. And and of course, the polling that shows that he was indeed a favorable figure. All of that aside, Robbie, it doesn't matter who he was. Right. It doesn't matter if he was a war criminal. If he was a deadly killer, if he was responsible for the deaths of thousands of people, like that's what we're missing here is that people are kind of bending over backwards being like he was a peace leader. He was fighting ISIS. He defeated ISIS, all of this stuff. It's like it doesn't matter who he was. It is a war crime to assassinate a foreign leader. The, I think that we need to get out of this trapping and and just stand behind the notion that it is a war crime and completely unacceptable. And we have to be unified in that because as soon as These narratives fall apart. They're going to start being weaponized against us. And then you're going to see the fragile segments of the anti-war left, as they always do in times of the Venezuela coup, the Iraq war, Libya invasion, making these false equivocations of Saddam, of Maduro. And then we get caught up to splinter the left instead of staunchly opposing U.S. aggression and U.S. imperialism.
1: Yeah. And I also think that, I mean... From what I've been researching, I, it seems to be that what Mike Pompeo and other Trump administration officials, when they say that Soleimani is responsible for the deaths of thousands of Americans, they're they're referring to the Iraqi insurgency. Like, they're, they're, I mean, yeah. and that's what's really slippery about this whole narrative is that it kind of is pushing forward a narrative that the Bush administration tried very hard to get to stick and weren't successful at. The Obama administration tried it a little bit too, not as much as the Bush administration, but now it's almost like it's just a foregone conclusion that the entire Iraq insurgency somehow had no agency and was all being puppeted by the Iranian government, specifically this general. Um, And that's a very fascinating narrative to me because... The Bush, I mean, we, we you know, for a long time, the general public never really believed that to be the case, they, but the media was trying very hard to beat that into our heads. But now it's like, oh, yeah, that's how that would happen. It's like, no, that's actually not, <laughs> it's not true. Um, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And uh, I think people really need a re- sort of a re-education on, on what actually, the history of even that and, and who Soleimani was. How much of the Iraqi insurgency was actually being fueled by Iran needs to be really unpacked um, because that's, you know, a really overly simplistic narrative. And this idea that Soleimani beat ISIS or stopped ISIS, and that's why the Trump administration targeted him, I think is also a reductive and false narrative. I mean, I think, I'm just going to be honest about my own opinion here, just, and this is partially speculation, I think they killed him to send a symbolically threatening message to Iran and to try to goad them into an escalation of a response back at us. I think it's pure, that's pure and simple what it was about. I don't even really think this had anything to do with his role in fighting ISIS or even his alleged role in fueling the Iraqi insurgency. I think this was a symbolic hit, assassination. Now, what do you guys think about that?
2: Yeah, you know, let's not forget that the U.S. just spent the past three years waging a major war against ISIS. I mean the bombing against ISIS forces in Iraq and Syria under the Trump administration, you know, exploded, you know, like 400%. In fact, Trump campaigned on this, bombing the shit out of ISIS. And that's exactly what he did. He increased the numbers of troops in Iraq and Syria and he increased the numbers of bombings in Iraq and Syria to destroy ISIS. And of course, some of that was in collaboration with Soleimani and his militias and the Iraqi government forces and all of that. Um, And so the idea that, uh, they are punishing Soleimani for defeating ISIS because, in fact, they do want ISIS now to be in control in Iraq and Syria, um, I think just kind of misses the kind of overall U.S. strategy. I think it's more likely that now that ISIS, the ISIS mission is pretty much wrapped up, that the U.S. has succeeded alongside its allies, you know, the, the strategic alliance against ISIS in the region, now that they don't have to be as bogged down defeating ISIS, and that they can go back to their other targets that ISIS had distracted them from initially. You know, ISIS was a surprise. The U.S. Was, our, was already trying to advance these types of imperial interests in the region. ISIS was this big surprise distraction that they then had to focus on Uh, defeating that posed a threat to its hegemony in the region. And now that ISIS is, is for the most part, defeated, now they can shift. Okay, now let's go back to our plans of initiating a war with Iran. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think that these actions are intended to elicit a response. I mean, there's to think that Iran would not respond in any way. And to the day after this assassination, doing another bombing of these same militias, you know, you are seeing some resistance from the Democratic Party now. You even had Chuck Schumer trying to lead it saying that Trump is not allowed to do any military actions without congressional approval this is illegal and being out there as like a major voice against the war even all of these other you know people like Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden they are conceding that yes this guy was a bad person shouldn't but like it shouldn't have been done this way right All of that is in the context of now Trump taking this unilateral action and assassinating someone. The very second that Trump succeeds and is what Trump succeeding and getting American blood spilled. If Iran responds against U.S. military forces in Iraq, which is which is a a very good possibility. And they would be well within their rights to do that. As soon as that happens, as soon as there is one American dead as a response uh, from Iran to this assassination and these bombings, or by Iraqi forces that are so-called Iranian-backed, all of those forces that are opposing him now from the Democratic Party establishment, they will immediately flip and say, Iran has no right to attack our forces. We are entitled to a disproportionate military response. Uh, just going back to that, the propaganda narrative about how he's responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans, you know, it's funny because for the past two years, I get these targeted ads on Instagram. You know how like Instagram ads are like curated to your whatever your life? Yeah. I get all these targeted ads for soldiers that say, uh, were you affected by any IEDs in Iraq? And if you were, you can be part of this class action lawsuit to sue what Iranian the banks. Fuck? Yeah, exactly. I mean I, ha- I should have That is such as like, like a psyop. What the hell? Yeah. Like what? Right, fu- exactly. Because there is a class-action lawsuit against Iranian bakes because they're trying to make this, you know, Iran helped Iraq, and so anyone wounded in an IED, it's ultimately Iran's fault. Wow. Um, so I think the, the evidence that Soleimani personally played a role in this, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff out there debunking it, showing that there's no link. Um, but let's, I, I think that it's more important to talk about the fact that, like, even if there is a link, it doesn't matter. Uh, the United States was in Iraq illegally. It was illegal for the U.S. to occupy Iraq, and it was completely immoral for the U.S. to occupy Iraq. And when the Iraqi people were exercising their right, in fact, their right under international law to resist and shoot and blow up U.S. forces, that is their right under Geneva Convention of people who are occupied by a foreign army. Um, exercising their right, the Iraqi forces through the first part of the Iraq war were just being obliterated by the U.S. because they didn't have good equipment. Very little of them had training. And so there is, the, the Iraqi forces were being, you know, when they're trying to defend their own homes and their own neighborhoods from the kind of daily brutality, torture, uh, wanton arrests and, and just shooting of random people on the street. When Iraqi people were exercising their right to defend themselves, um, they were being very much crushed by the American military. And so they asked their friends and their neighbors for help. The, Iran in some way did assist the Iraqi uh, the Iraqi resistance against u s occupations um, they were provided with some weapons they were provided with some training and tactics, and that's actually what ter- you know what helped turn the tide of the of the Iraqi resistance to be able to actually um, have the capacity uh, through training and equipment to defend themselves and so a lot if I think the u s government wants to blame Iran. And Iraq for those American soldiers killed. When we should be blaming Bush and Cheney for those American soldiers killed. We had no reason to be there. It was based on a lie. It was illegal under international law. We're thrown into that situation, and so of course, inevitably, you can expect that people are going to defend their own homes, and they're going to ask for help from their friends and neighbors to to defend their own homes. And so that's the real situation. And so I think that same thing plays into now. If any American soldiers die now, it is not the fault of Iran. It is not the fault of Iraq. It is the fault of Trump and the Trump administration. And so if any Americans get killed, we need to point the finger at the politicians and the generals who created this crisis rather than the people that are exerc- you know, well within their rights uh, to retaliate and act in their own self-defense. The only
1: danger I see in really playing into that the narrative that um, Iran is largely responsible for the insurgency in Iraq is that it was, u- it was being utilized by the Bush administration as a way to leapfrog us From the Iraq war to a potential Iran war. Right. And um, I don't know if you'll stay on for the rest of the podcast, but I have a bunch of basically, uh, I I put together a timeline of when the Bush administration started to try to make it all about Iran in Iraq. Um, and it's pretty interesting to go back to that time period because yeah. they had, they were basically trying to say, so what you're saying is, you know, a much more nuanced, you know, reality. They were trying to say that every IED um, blowing up hey. in Iraq was being literally imported from Iran. Right, um, right. And they even had like a little press conference where they showed Colin Powell style slideshows and stuff for this. And, the, and surprisingly, the U.S. media still didn't buy it even after being shown that little slideshow. So I'll go into that later. It's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, but, you know, it is. And it's important to point out that, like, yeah, Iran played a role, but the Iraqi resistance was uniformly popular throughout the entire country and was developing very rapidly, getting more people involved and, 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 you know, becoming more sophisticated in their tactics. So if Iran had played no role at all, the Iraqi resistance still would have coalesced into the forces that it did and still driven out the U.S. military as it did. And you know now this, this idea that the U.S. doesn't want to fight a war against Iran on Iraq's soil is precisely because of those Iraqi forces that have developed. For example, the Mahdi army which is a 100,000 strong or more military force of Iraqis, that they're the primary force that defeated the U.S. military on their own. And they've just reformed. They were disbanded as part of the deal for the U.S. to leave. But now they've reformed and said, we are ready to fight the American forces again. Um, and so these, these forces are 100% completely capable of uh, defeating the U.S. on their own without Iran's help. Um, and I think that's why, you know, that's the perspective that we need of, of the Iraq war is that, you know, it's the same thing with Vietnam, looking back at Vietnam, like every time the U S has been dealt a military defeat, um, they want to blame everyone uh, but themselves for that. And so part of the narrative of why the United States was defeated in Iraq, just like the part of the narrative about how it was defeated in Vietnam, it was outside forces. Yes. It was the Soviet Union helping. It was Iran helping. It was the liberals in Congress that weren't giving enough money or it was yeah, yeah. the media that was skewing the coverage of the war. They want to blame everyone but their own imperial hubris.
1: And I also think it's important to to say that they also want, they don't want to blame specifically the people and the citizens of that, that, you know, those countries that are upset right. because it makes it too human, humanized.
2: Yeah, they don't. They don't want the message being sent that occupied peoples can organize yes. together and rise up and defeat the most powerful military in world history. Which is, which is, you know, what's happening in Iraq, Afghanistan, exactly. what happened in Vietnam, what happened in many other places, and uh, will continue. to.
1: Happen. And I find that fascinating because it's almost like a form of gaslighting us into just like not seeing the re- the direct reality in front of our faces. I mean, of course, any person who's occupied by a foreign military and have their fellow citizens murdered in front of them will want to fight back. I mean, it, it's a very common human r- impulse response. So that, that yeah. to me is, yeah. it is, is very bizarre how they're almost trying to remove all agency from any, you know, potent, like just that reality. It's, 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 it's odd.
2: Yeah, you know, and it's a, just another quick piece of Iraq war history before we move on from the invasion and the many the years that the many many years that that came afterwards. Is that in the initial uh, occupation of Iraq, you know, resistance to American forces was was relatively small. In fact, you know, I know this from being there from the very, very beginning, is that I think most Iraqis were like, all right, I mean, if Saddam got overthrown, whatever, the American forces are going to leave, uh, you know, and they were just kind of waiting out to see what's going to happen. There was very limited and small organized resistance to the U.S. occupation. And it was the longer the U.S. stayed and the more it conducted itself in the way that it conducted itself, right, that turned the Iraqi population against U.S. forces. And so the Iraqi resistance developed because the U.S. stayed there for no reason and then just started doing combat operations, even though there is no resistance, right? I mean, there'd be like, oh, one pop shot came from some guy in a car. And so we're going to surround this entire village, bust down everyone's door, uh, throw everyone against the wall, arrest every military age man, ransack their homes, send all the men to these torture facilities where they're not going to be seen from for two years. And when we bust into the village, shoot some people who we think are running for a weapon, but really aren't, or who grabbed a weapon in their home because they thought it was, you know, sectarian forces that were raiding their homes or something like that. I mean, that's the kind of daily life Iraqis were living through that led to the f- the fomentation of the Iraqi resistance. And so it wasn't just because it wasn't an immediate thing. It was developed through the conduct of the U.S. military.
1: Yeah, and even just a side note on that, I, I mean, other forms of media propaganda here and the Bush administration trying to take away all agency of Iraqis was, so it was like a twofold narrative that they were being fueled by Iran on one hand, but that all the actual armed fighters were "Quote unquote," Al Qaeda in Iraq, um, right. they were all taking orders from Zar- Zarqawi, so they, 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 they there was very little room even back then during the Bush era to be like, oh yeah, the Iraqi people are actually rising up against us and trying you know trying to get us out of their fucking country. Um, so that's always I guess been the case, but it's uh, you know, and I don't want to get stuck on that too long, but I, I just think it's important to point that out how how bizarre that is that they try to remove the agency. Um, from the Iraqi people. Maybe maybe before Mike has to go, I wanted to bring up this just totally unrelated thing from, well, not lot, totally unrelated, but this idea that Michael Bloomberg um, has just entered the presidential race, is buying a huge amount of ad buys beyond any other Democratic candidate right now. And it's strange to me that his outlet um, employs two of the most influential uh, anti- Iran hardliner propagandists, Josh Rogan and Eli Lake um, in the in the Bloomberg outlet. I guess maybe just bouncing this off of you guys, have you seen any like think tank propaganda coming out from like these you know quasi-intellectual people like Josh Rogan or Eli Lake or anyone like them that sort of caught your attention in the last few days?
2: Well, well, what caught my attention from him was Bloomberg himself um, showing that he's like the most hardline Democratic candidate against Iran because he condemned in one of his speeches Bernie Sanders for calling it an assassination, yes. which it clearly was. I don't think there's any argument about that. Even though Bernie is the only candidate, I think that used that term. Um, Bloomberg came out and was like, "It is dangerous and wrong to call this an assassination," which is effectively just be saying that Trump was right and that this was a strategically important you know, self-defense move that if we didn't do this, he was going to kill Americans. So you can't call that an assassination. You call that uh, self-defense.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to distinguish what's coming from these think tank operatives or people like Eli Lake and Josh Rogan, because it's parroted um, to such an extreme degree. Right. And it just permeates uh, so quickly throughout the corporate media and, uh, political establishment, that it's really quite indistinguishable. Within hours, uh, it was just very pervasive. The fact that Soleimani was a maniac who was plotting attacks. They're going to kill us here if we don't kill them there. You know, that that's just what I kept getting um, kind of deja vu about. And it was really just everyone, Robbie. I mean, it was it was MSNBC. It was CNN. It was Fox, of course. I mean, you had Christine Amanpour repeating this shit. You had... Even people from Vox's national security team just being like, Look, what are the reasons not to take this guy out? Yeah. I mean, really? So, you know, even people like Michael Ian Black, like like people who are just total centrist douchebags, just kind of being like, who cares? So what? Like this guy was a danger. You know, just just as if we've learned nothing from the Iraq war after a million Iraqis die. And I think that really goes back to the fact that these people are so completely detached from the consequences of war and the lack of accountability for the military um, industrial complex and just for its arm, which is the media establishment. Um, There's absolutely no accountability or repercussions for blatantly lying, spreading Pentagon propaganda that results in the deaths of potentially millions of people. And it's really only the poor people who are going to suffer as a result of this, both in this country and the countries that are under our bombs. Yeah, let's talk about the soldier stuff that Mike is doing and also um, the need to kind of get involved in these demonstrations and how... It's a really powerful tool, especially when we can't count on the opposition from the political establishment. You know, you have all the Democrats signing on to the defense budget, um, surveillance powers, and kind of preempting all of their condemnations with being like, yeah, this was a strategically strategic blunder done in a bad way, but he still needed to die. So Mike, why don't you take it away with um, the need to resist and organize soldiers and also just activists?
2: So I think that uh, we're in kind of a advantageous position right now in terms of building resistance to this war and and imperialism in a broader sense within the military um i think that first off we're in kind of a different place in terms of who's joining the military today we know that in the post 9-11 era when the the wars in iraq and afghanistan were at all-time highs which actually when you had the lowest recruitment numbers in military history uh post-draft or whatever uh you know, people joining the military were were joining the military with the understanding that they were most likely going to go to war. Um, you know, that was like the mentality. It was people joining because they wanted revenge for 9-11, because they wanted to live out some Hollywood action hero fantasy um or even if they join for the same economic reasons people normally join for you join saying well i'm probably going to go to iraq i'm probably going to go to afghanistan that is a generation that is you know in the past i think that people who've been joining the military over the past several years join thinking that they're most likely not going to go to war unless they're joining in marine corps army infantry so all these people in the navy and the air force and the army and the Mar- non-combat jobs and the army and the marines um they are now all of a sudden confronted with the possibility of going to war. I saw the same, you know, I joined the army two months before nine eleven, And so it was sim- a similar generation as people who are like very low likelihood we're ever going to go anywhere, especially in the jobs that they were in. You know, it's all very similar to the Gulf War era in 1990 when the Gulf War started. Everyone who had joined the military around then, it was when they just came out with a GI Bill and there was like no major conflicts on the horizon. So most people in the military were like, oh, this is some sweet college money. I'll just sit stateside. And who the hell are we going to go to war with? As soon as the Gulf War started, within a matter of like a week or so, 2,500 US soldiers filed for conscientious objection status and refused to go to the Gulf War. And the ones who weren't approved, their CO status wasn't approved, they just walked away or decided to go to jail instead of going to the Gulf War. Um, and that was just a limited conflict. Now, I was saying to think today we're in a similar situation. People who joined for the same reasons people joined pre 9 11 or prior to the Gulf War. And, who, and in the younger generation is just more politically conscious. I mean, Bernie Sanders has gotten more donations from active members of the military than Trump, Biden, Buttigieg, and all the other Democratic candidates combined, including Trump. I mean, we thought Trump was popular in the military. Trump plus all the other Dem candidates do not even match the number of donations people in the military uh, have given to Bernie Sanders. And so uh, at, it's you know that within the military, there is a large amount of discontent about the real potential that the U.S. could be going into a major war where everyone, sailors, people in the Air Force, doesn't matter who you are, you're in danger of of being obliterated or having to bomb cultural sites and civilians in other countries. And so I think that I very with my small network put out a call to say anyone who's in the military who doesn't want to take part of this, hit me up and I can help you walk you through the conscientious objector uh, status process. And I was really overwhelmed. This is even bigger than the height of the Iraq War and the height of the Afghanistan War where I did this kind of work. The number of people that have already reached out to me and I've been talking to and who are preparing to submit CO packets, it's in the dozens. And that's, like, that's, that's just with the small amount of people that I've reached. Like one of my close friends who, from the Army who stayed in, who's, about to, who's like a year or two out from retirement, he's about to drop... He wants to drop a conscience objector packet and says he will if a war with Iran starts. And so even like longtime army guys who have been in forever and it's their whole career and new people who it's like it's like across the board there is opposition to this from within the military and I think that that's important and so I think anyone listening if you know anyone in the military if you are in the military you need to be you're not alone uh, and you need to be part of this growing movement of resistance within Um, I want to suggest like you can just Google the GI rights hotline they're a very important resource it's all volunteer professional confidential staff that gives you guidance on doing this kind of thing but always reach out to me you can reach out through eyes left pod on Twitter uh, or just find finding a ways to reach out to me through other networks I'm talking many people right now and, and you should all kind of exercise the rights that are available to you to refuse to take part in this and people who aren't in the military or are friends in the military just by your very action in the streets and spreading this kind of information you never know who you're going to reach uh, that stops them from going to this war and kind of plays a role in the larger building of resistance from within the ranks which is you know can be hugely impactful as we saw in the Vietnam War it really was a force that stopped the war from going any further. So,
0: yeah, anyone who wants to reach out to Mike who's listening to this that's an active duty soldier knows anyone in the military, please DM eyes left pod on Twitter. Mike will respond to you and you guys can discuss um, how you can do that. There's a lot of options for you. Or again, you can contact the GI hotline. You do not need to go and serve uh, Trump's ridiculous war. This is a war for billionaires who basically are part of these defense contractors, banks and oil companies. And we do not need to be a part of this. This is not your war to fight. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us. Please follow Mike on Twitter, Mike Preisner, and his podcast Eyes Left. Thanks so much for your amazing insight, Mike.
1: Thanks, yeah. John. Thanks, Mike. and keep up- the good work have you seen any good takes coming through alternative media or any bad takes Um, because I was really surprised even though I have seen zero hedge specifically taking a turn for the worse since the Trump administration started um, I was really surprised to see that the last, like, three or four days of coverage they've been doing on Iran in this, in this situation has been very fear-mongery and uh, kind of neocon-flavored. And I, I just want to know if you've seen anything like that or seen any alternative media people who you would think would have good takes but are actually having really bad takes.
0: I was wondering where Zero Head would fall given... The fact that you said Drudge was kind of more skeptical about Trump, um, not just being kind of a dutiful foot soldier for the Trump administration as of late, um, but I, I think it really shows you these people are kind of going to line up for war. You know, I mean, especially the MAGA chuds and the people who are just dumbass um, conservative-leaning people who mm-hmm. who like Trump, and it doesn't matter if they claim that they you know, are anti-interventionist or not. Um, It kind of all goes back to the whole, they're terrorists and we need to protect America because they have that kind of dumb bent of nationalism that's that's embedded in their brains. As far as bad takes from the left-leaning alternative media, absolutely. I mean, look, these are the same people... Who bought into the notion that Trump was an anti-interventionist and he was anti-war. And I still see people today, three years into his administration, being like, Trump doesn't want this. Like, Trump campaigned on this. Yeah, Um, He wanted to end endless wars. Like, why is he doing this? Putting up these side-by-side tweets of being like, Trump said this, and now he's doing this. And it's like what are you guys talking about? I mean, let's let's look at what he does, not what he says. When have you ever done that? When have you ever taken Obama's rhetoric at face value? And this is why Mike and I did Trump Expanding the Empire series on Empire Files, because Trump is a monster who has been expanding militarism in every region of the world. He used anti-interventionist rhetoric during his campaign because it was popular to oppose the Iraq War. And you have even people like Jeremy Scahill who said Trump was our best hope to end the endless wars. And this was like a year or two after he was already doing this shit. It wasn't even at the beginning of his administration. You had Craig Murray. I remember saying that the Democrats were going to impeach Trump or wanted to because he was anti-war and not going along with the Democrats' military-industrial complex, Robbie. Yes. And, you know, it really just takes anyone looking at the facts Trump is a horrible militarist who's increased war and empire in every region via sanctions, coups, since he took office. And he was very happy to escalate the conflicts that he adopted that were already in place without being blamed for, quote-unquote, starting them. And again, campaigning on bombing the shit out of ISIS, and he definitely fulfilled that promise with expanding drone strikes 400% and doubling civilian casualties all over the world.
1: Yeah, I just find it really fascinating how that narrative still persists and you even get a different version of that narrative. So there's like a weird balancing act that people do. So you see it on the right, like people like Jack Seboiuk saying that uh, Trump actually says he doesn't want regime change in Iran. Look at yeah, that. Yeah. I mean,
0: he did this to stop the war. Yeah. He did this to stop a war. Like,
1: so we have this narrow track where it's like, I'm against regime change wars. Well, what about wars when we just like assassinate people and just blow away a bunch of civilians and then get out? You, Because you got to be, because if you're actually anti-war, you got to be against that too. And also the idea that, um, like we were just talking about, the idea that the neocons in the military industrial complex are always trying to do actual regime change is not necessarily the case. A lot of this, you know, seems to follow the model of like disaster capitalism, destabilization. So... If you're just only going against regime change wars, you're actually missing a large portion of how those resources are being poured into the this hellscape right now. So uh, I, I find that strange that, that that things have become so narrow. Yeah, Trump isn't traditionally like other neocons, but when you really boil it down, you know these neocons who say they want to democratize the Middle East or spread democracy. I mean, ultimately, their goals are much more aligned with just hardliner people who want to just kill Muslims and kill these people. Right. Ultimately, it almost doesn't matter because, I mean, on some level, some of those neocons have to be knowing that that's a bullshit premise. I mean, they can't be complete morons. They know that that's bullshit. It just sounds pretty to say we want to spread these American values of liberalism to the Middle East. I mean, we heard Don and Fred Kagan the day after 9-11 talking about just wiping out Palestinians. They want to clean it out. That's how they think about Muslims and brown-skinned people in the Middle East. They don't think of them as human beings. Ultimately, I mean, Trump has come out as a neocon like we always suspected. <laughs> it was just a matter if he was actually going to like pull the trigger and do something really, really psychotic. And he has. And I, and it, not to say that I didn't already think he was going to be carrying out a neocon agenda before this. But now it's just completely clear. There should be no denying it now. But you'll still see but people Robbie, denying you, it. You
0: can't. You can't blame John Bolton even though he's not in the administration anymore? It's not his fault?
1: No, Abby, because he's pulling the string. He's still forcing Trump's hand from outside the administration. In fact, there are people right now saying that John Bolton is threatening to testify in the impeachment hearings if Trump doesn't go along with his Iran war fantasies. (laughs) What? That's an interesting speculative sort of cartwheel to do to, again, take away Trump's own agency and remove Uh, the idea that he actually is willing to go through this on his own and also ascribes positive intent to Trump, that he's hesitant. So, yeah, that's a bullshit narrative.
0: That's so weird.
1: I'm trying to think of the other narrative I saw that really bugged me. Oh, yeah, the narrative actually that people are are still saying, um, and I actually commented on this about a week ago because I just still see this narrative persisting where people are like, God, Trump is so awful, but you know what? If Hillary was in office, we'd already be at war with Iran right now. I saw people saying that as uh, as recently as like a month or two weeks ago. Trump is literally starting a war with Iran right now. You fucking idiots. I, I just find it bizarre that no matter what Trump does, I feel like even if he nukes Iran, there still be people saying that he doesn't want regime change and acting like it's okay. <laughs> I mean, that's how weird this has gotten. We need to remember that all forms of war should be opposed. The war on terror... Political assassinations, bombing campaigns, regime change wars, proxy wars, funding rebel groups, funding militias to fight in these other countries. I mean, all of these things should be equally opposed, unanimously opposed by the anti-war movement. And I am sick of this sort of all this right-left confluence where we have to get in this narrow, crappy framework to oppose war by saying we don't want to waste our blood and treasure over in the Middle East. That's what Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA is saying right now. He's actually being like celebrating this, saying like, good, now we can finally get out of these endless wars that are costing us so much money. That is not an anti-war position. That is a Koch brother engineered Tea Party position to help toxify the anti-war scene. And it's actually been quite effective, extremely effective. And I think we really need to resist that.
0: Yeah, you have a lot of uh, neo-Nazi light elements um, and also just people like Richard Spencer, Charlie Kirk, Jack Sebaik trying to kind of hijack the anti-war movement, right? And inject really toxic talking points that make it a lot more difficult to argue our points. And these people are not anti-war. They're not anti-imperialist. And it all kind of goes back to what you're saying, which is it's about America, It's about wasting American money and American lives. It's not about the people, you know, the cost of war for the people who are actually living under the bombs, death and destruction. And it's just really, really dangerous to ally with these people or let them inject themselves into your movement. This alleged need to link up with right wingers and Trump supporters to oppose war, to support Julian Assange. Look at what he did to Julian Assange. The wool is so far pulled over these people's eyes. You cannot reason with them. But it's just like we were right the whole time about calling bullshit on that. You know, not that I'm saying that these like these COINTELPRO type agencies who are saying, look at, you know, the right wing is promoting the answer coalition's protests or like calling me out because crazy right wingers are retweeting my calls for protests. Like, obviously, we shouldn't just do different things because of these like, these kind of cop style outlets are, are doing this to try to splinter the left. But it is a dangerous thing that is happening. Yes. Where the right wing is trying to kind of hijack our movement and pretend like they actually care fundamentally about war and about U.S. imperialism. We just know that's not the case because, again, they're the ones toxifying the shit and spreading the false narrative that Trump himself doesn't want this. And therefore, you can support Trump and still be allied to the anti-war movement.
1: Yeah. And it's such a narrow narrative. And what I can't stand is these leftists and anti-imperialists who it's almost like they'd rather play into the more popular narrative to get their own stuff to float. But all, I mean, all you have to do to fight against it, you don't have to like wage war with these alt-right people who are siphoning energy from our sort of anti-war side. You just have to widen the narrative, widen the scope of how you oppose war. Because the more narrow you get to try to join up with these right wingers who act like they oppose war and do their diet anti-war dance on social media, um, the more you're actually doing damage to the actual cause of opposing war, I think. Regardless of how popular this more clickbait viral narrative is now, that the right wing props up about war, the Trump you know version, it, it's still doing incredible damage because it's the dominant narrative we need to go back to a wide scope anti-war belief system that opposes all forms of US imperialism and US war. Um and I and I just feel yeah. like we've really gotten quite far away from that and it's it, it it's very concerning.
0: It is indeed. And speaking to just this bipartisan push of how the Democrats have propped this up, the Democrats are the war party. The Democrats have set the stage for US imperialism and and Trump's actions, right? Yes, of course, the Democrats have co-signed onto the worst policies of the Trump administration, because when you look at war, when you look at deportation, when you look at all of these horrible things, there is no difference between the main parties, right? It's mostly a cosmetic change. However, how are we possibly removing the agency of the Republicans being actually the worst, right? And going back to the Bush administration, which really laid the groundwork for ISIS, for um, the destabilization of the Middle East for the inevitable Iran war that um, that looks like it's on the horizon.
1: We've gotten really trapped in some really dumbass narratives here because of Russiagate. And it is a lot, a lot of it's to blame on the Russiagate pushers, these sort of neoliberal, um, you know, national security state people who have been trying to push Russiagate. Because what it's done is it's made a lot of these skeptical people who don't believe Russiagate sort of see only CNN and MSNBC as these fake news networks trying to push Russia hysteria. And I even started to see like viral memes saying like stop the war, stop the propaganda or whatever. And they'd show like CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC. And then for some reason, like Fox news wasn't mentioned on there. And I'm like, what? Like, that's really weird because Fox news was always the dominant sort of neocon network. But now Abby it's like the coming out party. The you know the switch has been flipped. Now Fox News, after all this Iran stuff, has now become again the very hardliner, total neocon network, constantly you know fear mongering about Iran, uh, full war drum beating. And CNN and MSNBC have been slightly a slightly less aggressive version of that, and have actually been poking some holes in the Trump administration's narrative. So I don't know. Why people still hold on to this narrative that Fox News is somehow anti-establishment now or it's not as bad. It's just as bad. It just carries out a slightly different agenda than these other ruling class media outlets do. Um And this is their like pet agenda. Also, one other point I wanted to make is that this whole Russiagate narrative we've been told by the right wing this whole time, especially even on Fox News, which is quite weird. People like Sean Hannity are saying that this Russiagate stuff is all the deep state, um, that the deep state are trying to do a coup on Donald Trump. Well, let's just be honest about this. The Russiagate stuff is really relatively new. Whatever confluence of people came up with that to try to undermine Trump's presidency with, they're not that deep. If we want to talk about the deepness of the deep state, they really aren't that deep. It's, it hasn't been going for that long. You know what is really fucking deep, Abby? is the fact that there is a deep state faction that has wanted war with Iran for over four decades in this country. And some of those same literal deep state neocon players who are in the Reagan administration, who are fucking pissed at the hostage crisis and were super embarrassed by it, are now in power under Trump, like Elliott Abrams. I mean, literal
0: Reagan deep state neocons are in this current administration and Yeah, and and Trump even said he wants to bomb 52 cultural sites to make up for every hostage, um, all the 52 hostages. You saw that, right?
1: I did not actually make that link, and I didn't realize it until you just said it, but wow, that is fucking crazy because that pretty much proves what I'm saying is that the Iranian hostage crisis, yes, we want to do regime change in Iran on some level, obviously. We want to make sure that they never can get a nuclear weapon, obviously. But at the same time, like, I think I really do think a lot of this animosity is we cannot this new government that took over and and captured our captured our embassy officials and made them hostages. It is such an affront to the American empire and the fact that we're the biggest kid on the block. That is still a deeply held resentment that I think these national security figures are still viscerally feeling. And, you know, this is the real deep state. What we're witnessing right now is the real deep state. And it's what I've been telling people the whole time is stop believing in this bullshit narrative that Trump is in opposition to the deep state. It's fucking cartoonishly simplistic. And this should prove to you that it's false, that this is what we're seeing now is what happens when the deep state really makes a move. You see unanimous narratives parodied everywhere, the same talking points unquestioned you know CNN barely question it Jake Tapper may be saying a few things to question it but it's just all out there as this lockstep narrative and I think that's when we should be really scared um, about what's going on
0: yeah forget about Russia gate forget about Ukraine gate this is this is when it really matters this is war and this is fulfilling plans like you said that have been in place for decades we see how everyone falls in line really quickly
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And to really reinforce how deep this is, we want to talk about deepness. Um, Let's just roll the clock back to 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. I mean, going beyond this bipartisan lens that is still being pushed, the fact that Democrats have set the stage for all of this, um, that's untrue. You look at the Bush administration setting the actual stage for the complete destabilization for the Middle East, right? The rise of ISIS came out of the vacuum of the destabilization of Iraq and subsequently Libya, which never would have happened without the invasion of occupation of Iraq. The widespread torture, the gulag that still exists in Guantanamo, all of these things were set into into place by the Bush administration, the most rabid neoconservatives to have taken power since the Reagan era which is who you're talking about. And a lot of them spilled over from the Reagan era. And let's talk about the Iraq war because it's really reminiscent of what's going on right now. It's very deja vu as someone who became activated during the invasion of Iraq from the actual media propaganda, not just the militarism, You know, not just the fact that the Bush administration was doing this, but the fact that the media was so blatantly lying And pushing these war narratives, unquestioningly. The fact that Nancy Pelosi, the fact that the Democratic establishment was going along with it, the fact that the deep state had taken over the entire so-called opposition to, at that time, what they were calling the worst president. A a lot of the political establishment was opposed to Bush in the wrong ways, but you still saw this kind of opposition to Bush in a slightly similar way to what we're seeing um, against Trump. But when it came to the Iraq War, when it came to 9-11, all of that changed everything was uniform and that's what woke me up and that's what jump-started my entire life's career and dedication to anti-war activism to anti-imperialist journalism that's what started media roots and so this is very dear to my heart it's dear to mike's heart obviously who went to iraq as an occupying soldier i know that you were very personally invested in it robbie um and and possibly got involved in this because of that as well so it's very very disturbing To see this happening again. And the only hope that I have before we go into the actual breaking down of this propaganda is the fact that I think the younger generation now is much more wary of corporate media narratives, much, much more distrusting of this kind of bipartisan consensus from the foreign policy establishment. And Inquisitive right questioning the hegemony of capitalism questioning the fact that US militarism and US foreign policy kind of reign supreme. And so that's what I'm hoping for um, is that they're not going to buy into it that we're not going to let this happen. But needless to say, we know that it's going to be a very tough road ahead. Because once these things um, start happening, it's hard to stop and it seems like the wheels are in motion. And, Robbie, why don't you take it away with going back through this timeline so people can kind of see how eerily reminiscent it really is?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's different in certain ways, but one of the main points I want to drive home with this is that we have basically restarted the clock from the Bush administration's previous attempts to push us into an Iran war. And the Bush administration actually was pretty slow-mo about it very strategic about how they tried to push the American public into wanting to go along with the war with Iran. It took place over a longer period of time than it has so far in the Trump administration. What I'm trying to say is the Trump administration, imagine at the end of the Bush administration that they hit pause on their Iranian war plans and that Trump has essentially taken it off pause and sped it up. Um, Because that's what I'm going to show you now is that during the Bush administration, there were so many breadcrumbs to try to get the American public to not just hate Iran, but to want to destroy it, that it's really chilling to think about that this actually could have happened. And it and it didn't, at least for the last, you know, almost 20 years, it didn't happen. But let me just take you back to some key events. And mostly I'm reading these as media propaganda stories that are coming out. Um, a lot of these are not actual factual events. They were sort of cooked up doctored stories being pushed out through the media like you said there was sort of this deep state consensus Fox News CNN MSNBC they were all on the same page pushing the war Phil Donahue got fired from MSNBC for opposing the war Keith Oberman who opposed the war didn't appear on MSNBC until like 2007 I think I mean as in terms of having his own show where he started talking about against the war
0: Chris Hedges got fired from New York Times. I mean, the list goes on and on from people who were trying to dissent and got fired from the mainstream media.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had a pretty much lockstep consensus, the scariest era I've ever lived through in this country. And not to say things are any less scary now, but this was a much more clear-cut, wow, there is like some serious brainwashing coming through the media every single day, incessantly. And it seemed to be going for like four or five years straight. So... Going back to 2004, the Bush administration announced that they are probing, they are investigating possible Iranian links to 9/11. So think about <laughs> how ridiculous this is. This is the Bush administration that did everything they could to cover up 9/11 that didn't even actually want any investigation. That's on record. Look up Tom Daschle, Cheney Bush literally requested to Tom Daschle that he halt and prevent a congressional inquiry into 9-11 before the 9-11 commission was formed. The Bush administration covered up the Saudi role in 9-11. Why would they do that? Everyone seems to accept that now. Well, they they really covered that up, and that's very strange and should be really deeply looked into. Um, In my mind, that makes them complicit at the very least, just that fact alone. But right now, what we're seeing, Abby, is Mike Pence resurrecting and trotting out this old narrative. We already saw hints of the Trump administration trying to trot out this old narrative, but it's an old neocon narrative that somehow Iran was behind or had a hand in the 9-11 attacks. So just like these recent Bin Laden file dumps that the Trump administration uh, released exclusively to the FDD think tank by Mike Pompeo, there was a concerted effort even in those Bin Laden file leaks to somehow link Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda to Iran. And that's, that's also very strange. So there's been these breadcrumbs that the Trump administration has been trying to release to b- resurrect this old Bush-era narrative. And this article from CNN, and we'll post this on the, uh, in the show notes, from 2004 confirms that the Bush administration was using administration resources to find connections between Iran and 9-11. And just for the record, there are none there are no connections between Iran and 9-11. That's, that's definitive. But there's actually a class action lawsuit that was attempted. And this actually came off the heels of a bunch of attempted lawsuits, class action lawsuits against Saudi Arabia for the 9-11 attacks, some bizarre organization or law firm, which in my opinion is likely some kind of cutout of some kind, <laughs> Bill Browder style. Um, trying to actually start class-action lawsuits against the Iranian government for 9-11, Abby. And, and courts around the country have heard these cases. I remember reading that, yeah. It's very, very bizarre. Seems totally artificially generated. There's only one 9-11 victim family member that I know of who's actually trumpeted this narrative. And she's either... I mean, I, I don't want to disparage her, but the things she says sound uh, just like Pinoch neocon talking points. And I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she's sort of largely shepherding this. So in 2005, the U.S. media tries to distort Ahmadinejad quotes about Israel and the Holocaust to fit an agenda or a narrative that was really being trumpeted that Iranian leadership is virulently anti-Semitic. And not just virulently anti-Semitic, but they actually want to kill all the Jews, that they want to do their own Holocaust. So simultaneously trying to paint Ahmadinejad, the Iranian leader, as a Holocaust denier and someone who want to do a Holocaust on the Jews as well. This is what the actual story said that came out. Speaking to thousands of people in the southeastern city of Zayden, Ahmadinejad said today they have created a myth in the name of the Holocaust and consider it to be above God, religion, and the prophets. Now that's his actual quote, but the headline of the article says, Iran president colon Holocaust a myth. (laughs) I mean, that's a real far leap. You know, that's a real far leap. And there have been some shady things that Akbar did, trying to stoke sort of Holocaust revisionism, revisionism movements and stuff. But that is a, not him saying that the Holocaust was a myth at all. Neither was him saying uh, that you know when the media from the wipe
0: Israel off the yeah map. the media from the yeah. same yeah. time
1: period was using in the same article I'm reading from you now. This is from CBS News from 2005 that Akbar also said he wanted to wipe Israel from the map. He actually said he wanted to wipe the Zionist regime from the page of time. That's what he said.
0: Yeah. And as, as we know, Zionism is different than, you know, Judaism. And, and to say that you want Zionism removed, I mean, a lot of people want the Zionist state to fall because that means the exclusively Jewish state that's artificially constructed to expel and ethnically cleanse the indigenous population. That does not mean wipe Jews off the map. That does not mean kill anyone. It means to dismantle that Zionist state, which is, I think, um, completely different. And it's a really, really disingenuous conflation. And it reminds me of um, the fact that him and Hugo Chavez, another number one enemy of the U.S., were at the UNGA, both of them saying, look into 9-11, question 9-11, probably made the media that much more angry, Robbie, and the political establishment that much more angry, the fact that you had... Um, These two figures specifically kind of calling bluff on the official story.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that that was hugely infuriating. I don't even think Putin or any, you know, I I can't think of any other leaders that had the balls to go that far and say those kind of things. It's pretty shocking. And, uh, you know, I think that just for that reason alone, Ahmadinejad, regardless of what he actually, you know, his ideology is or what you think of him, some pretty big balls to do that at the U.N., I mean, I I find that very impressive and admirable, if I'm being honest. Just a few months after this story, Abby, uh, trying to, again, you know, to to inflate or exaggerate what Ahmadinejad actually was all about. November 21st, 2005, ABC News headline, not opinion, mind you, total fear-mongering. And this is really fascinating because if you read this article, first of all, it's blatantly false because we know now how far behind Iran actually was in their nuclear... Uranium enrichment program for nuclear power. So to think that this article came out in 2005. This is actual this is the actual headline for the article. Iran is building nukes in underground locations. 2005. Straight up headline, not opinion piece. The actual article goes on to say Iran has built with the help of North Korea dozens of underground tunnels and facilities for the construction of nuclear capable missiles according to Al Reza Jafar Deza, a Washington, D.C.-based consultant and former spokesperson for the National Council of Resistance of Iran, (laughs) an Iranian opposition group. So it has not only is it blatantly false propaganda about how far along their nuclear program was. We know now that this could not have been even remotely true. But the fact that they're also including like a weird cutout guy in there to make it seem like there's some kind of like Iranian whistleblower
0: this incredible an abc news headline literally off of the random words of some cia spook guy in dc being like exactly iran has nukes with the aid of north korea mind you according to this random guy who's part of this probably fucking defense contractor funded think tank very good journalism
1: yeah and it also is funny to me that underground tunnel thing it's like you know, we can't show you any photos, of any of this stuff. We can't show you a photo of Bin Laden's secret <laughs> lair in Afghanistan, but we will show you a, a giant illustration of this underground fortress <laughs> that he's in. You know, we're just gonna we're just gonna show you what it, we think it looks like. Um, and I guarantee you, and I'm not even gonna, I don't even think this is speculation. I will guarantee you, um, prove me wrong, <laughs> that the media from this time period also showed underground illustrations completely made up by people at the Pentagon of what these underground tunnels looked like. The, the Iranians building their nukes. I guarantee you there are some graphics out there, some really dumb graphics. absolutely guarantee you.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. What else are these people spending money on, you know? Yeah, it's an information war. I mean, I mean th- there's a yeah. large
1: part of the Pentagon that is literally all about doing information war. A year after this, in 2006, uh, March 15th, there was an actual press conference where up until this point, the U.S. military had been sort of insinuating that all the IEDs that are blowing up American soldiers come from Iran, that Iraqis don't, you know, don't have any agency. They can't, they don't know how to build explosives. They're just all being handed all these materials by Iran. Now, at a press conference, and this is actually an article from Reading the Pictures. It's an interesting, but very short breakdown of of this propaganda that was put out.
0: Well, as, as Ben Shapiro says, Arabs live in filth and sewage, and so, of course, they don't want to make IEDs, Robbie. Yeah, I mean, not, not... Of course, the Iraqis are just primitive monkeys, like Tucker Carlson said. I
1: don't want to give any people any ideas, but making an IED is fairly simple. It's a fair? It's I mean, it, it, making explosives is not a very difficult thing to do, and... If anybody listening has looked into how any of these IEDs were made, um, a lot of them were remotely triggered by like really cheap cell phone, burner cell phones and stuff. I mean, really rudimentary stuff. This was not sophisticated weaponry. Um, But yet we needed to make it seem like it was all coming from Iran. And at a press conference, this is a quote from reading the pictures, asked whether the United States has proof that Iran's government was behind these developments Marine Corps General Peter Pace, chairman of the military joint chiefs of staff, told a Pentagon briefing, I do not, sir. So while the military and the Bush administration are making these claims constantly, the actual general at a press conference says he has no proof that it's actually happening. little later that year, we forget this, that another PNAC appointee, Project for the New American Century, neocon appointee, uh, went inside the Bush administration. Um, His name is Khalizad he was actually appointed to be head of the Iraq embassy, the U S embassy in Iraq. That was his job. Now he was saying in 2006 that the Iraqi insurgency was largely fueled by Iran, even while Maliki and Ahmadinejad were having peace talks. So Maliki was the prime minister, the puppet that we appointed in Iraq at the time. And he was actually reaching out to Ahmadinejad regularly um, to have peace talks. Now, this is what Ahmadinejad said at the time. Iran will give its assistance to establish complete security in Iraq because Iraq security is Iran security. It says that American generals have said that people or groups in Iran are providing training and financing to Shiite militias in Iraq. Mr. Azad said last month that Iran was urging Shiite militias to step up attacks on the American-led forces in retaliation for the Israeli assault on Lebanon. Now, you know, Maybe there's a kernel of truth to this, but I will never trust a neocon without any proof. And I think that, you know, that's the smart way to operate is anytime anybody says anything like this, especially if they're a neocon, don't believe it unless they can prove it to you. So this is a narrative that was going through the Iraq war the whole time. And I want to reinforce this, that this was a Bush, largely a Bush narrative that Iran was basically behind the insurgency in Iraq. Now, we also wanted to try to tie Iran to terrorism, not just 9-11. So there was a story in the New York Times that came out in 2006 um, in February that is essentially more propaganda headlines designed to insinuate that Middle Easterners like Iraqis or Palestinians have no agency and instead are being funded by the Iranian government. And also the implication that Iran funds terrorist groups. So the headline is, Iran pledges financial aid to Hamas-led Palestinians. Well, this was before Hamas actually won the general election there. So, of course, everything before that was just all about how, you know, all Palestinians are connected to Hamas. Now that they've actually won the election, like you point out in your film, they don't have to do that because now they can make it appear that all Palestinians are just hostile by default, hostile terrorists. So a little later that year, Condi Rice told senators Thursday, this is from CNN, Condi Rice told senators Thursday that the United States faces no greater challenge from a single country than from Iran. So right here, Condi is using fear-mongering about Iran being basically the biggest sponsor of terrorism, which is a lie, and that they're building a nuke, another lie, and that they're primarily the ones who are fueling the Iraqi insurgency to pitch the military budget at the time requested by the Bush administration. So she literally calls... The Iranian government, quote, a central banker of terror, saying that it plays roles in Iraq, Lebanon, and the Palestinian territories. Quote, Rice appeared at the Senate hearing in support of an emergency spending bill that seeks $68 billion for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, including $75 million to promote democracy in Iran. She said the money would help the United States broadcast messages more effectively to Iranians and do innovative outreach, including developing websites. <laughs> This is a really like <laughs> shoestring, like, uh, like old school version of like what happens now with like fake Twitter and Cuba, you know, social media blasts of fake talking points. Like right now on Twitter, one of the trending hashtags as I'm looking at Twitter literally says hashtag Iranians detest Soleimani as if that's a real hashtag. Of course, that's not real. That's a fucking like fake. Whoever put out that hashtag probably <laughs> spent millions of dollars to do so. And this is kind of along the lines of what Condi wanted to do back in 2006, when it was just all about websites, Abby, and social media wasn't even really a thing yet. In September of 2006, UN officials and IAEA officials say that the House report on Iran's nuclear ambitions to build a bomb are outrageous and dishonest. So, already in 2006, official representatives of the nuclear watchdog group and at the UN. We're saying that the American government's interpretation, not just the Bush administration's interpretation, but the House reports' interpretation of Iranians' nuclear program was outrageous and dishonest. A little bit after that, in October, there was an interesting Mother Jones article that talks about how neocons outside of the Bush administration, like Michael Ledeen and Richard Pearl, we're actually trying to prop up these like, fake, cut-out Iranian dissidents that were like, spreading all these lies about the Iranian government to make it seem like it had all these terroristic ambitions and was working with Al-Qaeda. So this is a good article you should check out from 2006. It's called, Has Washington Found Its Iranian Chalabi? Introducing the Talented Mr. Fakriver. That actual article is one of the only ones I've seen that breaks down some of the propaganda constructions of the Iran war from that time period. A little bit after that in December, late December 2006, regardless of the fact that people at the UN were blowing the whistle and saying that this report was outrageous and dishonest, the UN itself totally caved and fear-mongering via the Bush administration, the US media and the UK and Israel leads to the belief that Iran's nuclear ambitions were for weapons at the UN and that the UN actually caved to the winds of this propaganda by sanctioning Iran for their nuclear program. Which is quite tragic that, you know, people at the UN knew that this was total bullshit, but it still went through. About three months later, 2007, February 11th, is when the real hardcore push, Abby, started to happen, where it was like all the bombs killing our soldiers in Iraq. Those are actually from Iran, Abby. And the headline says, U.S. Sees New Weapons in Iraq. Iranian EFPs. The article goes on to say U.S. military officials charged on Sunday that the highest levels of the Iranian leadership ordered Shiite militias in Iraq to be armed with sophisticated armor-piercing roadside bombs that have killed more than 170 American forces. So now we're getting (laughs) some backstory on to why Pompeo and these people are saying that Soleimani is responsible for killing thousands of Americans. They're trying to glue this narrative together that really never stuck mind you, this never really fully yep. stuck that Iranians were the ones responsible for all the IED attacks in Iraq.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that when, when the media is parroting this now, they're not even talking about this, no. you know, it's just like just stating it as a fact and people are just like, oh my god, he's responsible, like it almost seems like he actually like constructed some sort of plot and literally killed people in like a A bombing attack or something like no one knows that it actually goes back to the bush administration propaganda drive talking about this where it's just like simple explosives like mike was saying insurgency that was just organic is is being linked to this guy like that that's nuts
1: well let me actually read you more of this article you'll see how even more nuts it is okay so the headline you know back then especially the headlines were way more deceptive compared to what the actual article says. And I think that, you know, news outlets and these propagandists have been relying on people's short attention spans for a while. But in the, in these instances, some of them are just shocking what the actual article really says. Well, yeah,
0: people, people only read, people only, only read the headline. So that's like yes. a really good way for them to push propaganda without the accountability. And then you can be like, Oh, well what? Like the article clearly says this. And it's like, people don't read the article.
1: Yes. So, the U.S. military was basically trying to say that five U.S. military helicopter crashes that had happened in the previous month, I guess it was like a pretty deadly time. And keep in mind, this is when it was more deadly. I think 2006 or 7 might have even been the most deadly year for American soldiers. This is when they were really pushing this Iran narrative. The article says that the military command in Baghdad denied, however, that any newly smuggled Iranian weapons were behind the five U.S. military helicopter crashes since January 20th. They say that four of them were shot out of the sky by gunfire. A fifth chopper crash has been tentatively blamed on mechanical failure. In the same period, two private security company helicopters have also crashed, but the cause was unclear. So this little presentation of evidence apparently was the result of weeks of preparation and revisions as U.S. officials put together a package of material to support the Bush administration claims of Iranian intersection on behalf of militant Iraqis fighting American forces. Yeah, so at this time, the Bush administration had basically instructed generals and Pentagon officials to create these little presentations for the press to prove this narrative to the public because the press wasn't necessarily buying it at the time. Um, it was just stated by the Bush administration. So they actually did a little presentation in front of the press. But a lot of reports from that same time period talked about how unconvincing it was. They had already been burned. Keep in mind that the press, yes, total propagandists went along with all the most of the Iraq war talking points. But the Jessica Lynch thing, I think, made a lot of them feel really burned, how much they had played into that blatantly false presentation by the U.S. military about Jessica Lynch. So I think it, by this time, they'd actually started to get a little more skeptical of the Bush administration's claims. So it, again, it didn't fully stick, but the Bush administration was really trying to push this narrative. Now, the Bush administration, of course, was also trying to increase tensions with Iran at the same time. In, in, only a month after that, nine U.S. warships Gulf for show of force. Uh, Reuters reported, quote, that a large flotilla of U.S. warships sailed to the narrowest point of the Gulf in broad daylight on Wednesday to hold drills off Iran's coast in a major show of force that unnerved oil markets. And then, of course, because of this, the press starts to think that the Bush administration is about to launch an attack on Iran. So the Bush administration comes out and has Rice say, quote, the U.S. is not preparing for war versus Iran. And she continues to say that Dick Cheney also doesn't support war with Iran. So the Bush administration is having to do a balancing act here where they're putting out all this propaganda to get the public to want to pivot towards Iran but at the same time trying to ease the public mind saying that we're not going to go about, uh, we're not actually going to go to war with Iran. Mm -hmm. And apparently this was a direct response to an anonymous UN official who was quoted in a report saying that he's worried about, quote, crazies in the Bush administration who want to start bombing. So that's apparently what it was in response to. Later in the year, on October 23rd, the Bush administration puts a missile shield in Poland, Now, this is arguably the real first opening salvo in the new Cold War era, Cold War 2.0. Putin had already largely seized power from Medvedev in Russia. The Bush administration said they were installing a nuclear missile defense apparatus in Poland to deter Iran. So, of course, Russia didn't believe that narrative at all. You know, and why would they? And most of the American public and the press actually didn't believe it either. This is when I think it's the press started to not carry water for the Bush administration to a large extent. And if you actually watch the press conference where the Bush administration announces this, the press seems largely confused about this actual idea. Why are we doing this to Russia right now? Like what, why is the Bush administration doing this about like with Russia and really making Russia worry? It wasn't like, oh yeah, the Bush administration needs to deter Iranian nukes, so they're setting up the shield in Poland. I think most of the people in the press knew that it was BS, but that happened.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, that happened on on right at the tail end of their administration, um, and that was actually one of the first things Obama did to do a reset. So you know, when Hillary w- went to um, Sergey Lavrov with the reset button, that was one of their first things to do. Is they were going to remove that. Just to show you that there was continuity between the Bush administration and the Obama administration on even Iran, to not give Obama a pass here, is the year before Obama gets into office, he's being interviewed by the press because he's a candidate, popular candidate at the time. The interview largely circulates around the looming potential of war with Iran. He repeats the talking points that Iran and Syria are fucking around in Iraq. He says, quote, the Iranians and the Syrians are acting irresponsibly inside Iraq. Um, They perceive that it is a way to leverage or impact or weaken us at a time when they're worried about United States actions in a broader context. But then he goes on to say that he wouldn't rule out bombing Iranians' nuclear facilities, but opts for direct talks with Iranian leaders. So
0: just. They're talking out of both sides of his mouth. And also, how just how weird is this sentence alone? The Iranians and Syrians are acting irresponsibly inside Iraq. What about fucking us? What about the US government? It's like, oh. Yeah, no, we're, we're responsible there, though. We're, we're fine. We're doing the right thing. Haven't killed a million Iraqis. Um, everything's hunky-dory. But yeah, it's the Syrians and Iranians who are the irresponsible actors inside Iraq. You really have to love this kind of framing here.
1: Absolutely. And we also can't forget that, you know, besides the fact that Obama was very hawkish on many things, he was very also extremely hawkish on Pakistan for some reason. That was like one of his main campaign platforms, even like in early the earliest debates. And that's always been curious to me. Where did he get inspired or influenced? What think tank people, what national security people got him so fixated on Pakistan? And I think that answer can be sort of revealed now by how close he got to Modi and the hardline sort of Hindu uh, factions in India. And I, and I don't know, you know, I mean, that doesn't explain all of it, but I do think there's something to that that needs to be looked into now. Um, people should probably go back and figure out why Obama was so dead set on drone bombing the shit out of Pakistan. People gave Obama a lot of credit for wanting to talk directly to Iran, similar to people how uh, similar to how people give credit to Trump for wanting to talk directly to North Korea. But even still, both men acted extremely hawkish towards both countries, and honestly, it was not expected. Based on Obama's, or especially early rhetoric going into office, that he would actually broker some kind of peace deal with Iran. That was an unexpected surprise and, you know, arguably one of the only good things he did at the end of his administration. There was some really bizarre stuff happening. Netanyahu came to try to go over Obama, speak oh to Congress. God. But yeah, the narrative continues about the Bush administration trying to paint all IEDs in Iraq as Iranian made. ABC News has this hilariously phony doctored story that's all sourced from anonymous intelligence officials saying exclusive Iraq weapons dot dot made in Iran question <laughs> mark. Some people say <laughs> it's like it's just funny that it's in the form of a question. And the right. actual. Article goes on to say, U.S. officials say roadside bomb attacks against American forces in Iraq have become much more deadly as more and more of the Iran designed and Iran produced bombs have been smuggled in from the country since last October. And this is actually the clincher that kind of made my my, little bit sick to my stomach is that Richard Clark is quoted in this article reinforcing the narrative again with no evidence and even admits it. Weird. But he's, he doesn't even cite the evidence. He says, I think the evidence is strong that the Iranian government is making these IEDs and the Iranian government is sending them across the border and they're killing U.S. troops once they get there, says Richard Clark.
0: This Wait, this, this sentence is, is hilarious. Can I please read this last yeah. sentence? He's like, I think it's very hard to escape the conclusion that in all probability, the Iranian government is knowingly killing U.S. troops. Yeah, so many wow. qualifiers
1: there. So, so this guy who, you know, it's is kind of acting like he's in opposition to the Bush administration, an outsider, yep. been kicked out, is saying that he thinks the evidence is strong. Well, what's the evidence? Show us the evidence. And it's very hard to escape the conclusion in all probability. I mean, what? <laughs> well, like I was saying before in our discussion with Mike, I think there definitely is a kernel of truth to this narrative. But we can't trust anything coming out of the Bush administration. And the fact that they're attempting to glue together this narrative now is very odd. As I've been saying, right. this never really fully stuck. It never really convinced Americans that Iran was waging a proxy war against us in Iraq, which was really what they were trying to convince us of. That it was like we're now we we're, we're fighting so Iran. Mired down. Abby, you
0: know, I mean Yeah, we were so mired down in the occupation of Iraq, I think people were so fatigued by war in general. I mean, that's why Obama won. He won on anti-war rhetoric he won on hinting that he was going to prosecute the bush administration close down gitmo that's where people's heads were at that's where public consciousness was so i think this shift this slow slow propaganda push to try to pivot toward iran and say it's really a proxy war with iran now people just weren't buying it at that point
1: no absolutely not i mean and and that's i think that's that's a silver lining here is that even if we're bombarded by propaganda like this it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stick. Now, I think that mm-hmm. in a way, it definitely backfired on the Bush administration to just go balls to the wall in Iraq and just basically go in there for no reason. I mean, it eventually came back to haunt them. And I think Mike is right that if that didn't backfire so badly, we probably would have seen some kind of war with Iran. So I think right. that that's really the only positive situation here is that it got so bad and backfired so badly that they didn't have the political cachet or capital to pull this off. So I guess the last thing from the timeline I'll end here on, as this goes beyond the Bush administration, this goes into the Obama administration. Um, John Kerry uh, was putting out propaganda that this General Soleimani was largely responsible for the Iraqi insurgency. And actually, at the Institute for the Study of War, Kim Kagan's think tank, uh, General Petraeus Really like telling this one story to people. And this is according to the Guardian from uh, 2011, July 28th. As it says, quote, there's a story that the new CIA director David Petraeus likes to tell, which harkens back to his days as a four-star general in Iraq. Early in 2008, during a series of battles between the U.S. and Iraqi army on one side and the Shia militias on the other, Petraeus was handed a phone with a text message from the Iranian general who had then become his nemesis. The message came from the head of Iran's elite Al-Quds force, Qasim Salami, and was conveyed by a senior Iraqi leader. It read, General Petraeus, you should know that I, Qasim Salami, control the policy for Iran with respect to Iraq, Lebanon, Gaza, and Afghanistan. And indeed, the ambassador in Baghdad is a Quds force member. The individual who's going to replace him is a Quds force member. Petraeus hardly needed to be told. Much of the U.S. military's work with Iraq Shia Muslims had been undermined by Soleimani and the client militias of the Iranian general's Al-Quds force. So too had U.S. government diplomatic efforts elsewhere in the Middle East, especially in Lebanon. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating because this is a narrative that, I mean, went through the Obama administration as well. So to have the Obama administration not, tamp down these narratives even more or not try to steer, you know, the climate away from this even more. The nuclear deal, I mean, it maybe was a symbolic gesture and it definitely put things on a better track, but you still had this sort of framework and track laid out during the Obama administration of all this hawkish sort of reductive rhetoric about how Iran was fueling the Iraqi insurgency. And that's something that the Trump administration just picked back up and ran with. So you got to fault the Obama administration too for not trying to tamp down more of these narratives and allowing them to flourish. I guess the point to reading all this is that these are all just really old narratives that are being dusted off and resurrected. And the Trump administration is just shoving them down our throats now, acting like they're just all indisputably true without showing us any evidence. And like I've been saying, the evidence that Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of thousands of Americans, the only evidence or proof that they have to even frame that talking point that way is everything I've been saying to you now is that this whole narrative that the Iraqi insurgency was secretly being puppeted by Iran and that pretty much every American soldier who died in Iraq, it's because of an Iranian general's fault. I mean, that's essentially what they're trying to tell us. Now, we all know that it's absolute bullshit to say that the Iraqi people themselves aren't actually picking up arms and fighting American soldiers. And I think that is really important to at least at the very least, if we're going to kill a million of them to still give them the decency of giving them agency that they care about fighting back against American occupiers themselves. And that even some of them maybe could build explosives like, Hey, let's give them credit for that too. Instead of saying that Iran had to give them all the material. Like I've been saying it's really not an an extremely difficult thing to do to build the kind of explosives that are being used over there. So I guess that's the end of my rant on this. If you have anything to add, Abby, please feel free.
0: Yeah, I'll just wrap this up by saying, you know, we're living in an era where accountability for the war with Iraq, which was the biggest war crime of my lifetime, right? I mean, a million dead, it can't be understated how devastating... The war and perpetual occupation of Iraq is. I mean, this is a situation that has been iterated several times. Trump has reinitiated another bombing campaign, um, reinstalled the troop presence there, right? Um, so, as we thought the war was waning, Trump has just exacerbated it. This was completely before the unprecedented bombing of this general. The fact that you have figures who were criminally culpable, um, Bush, I mean, he has been completely rehabilitated in the press. He has been defended by the liberal media and establishment figures to an extent that is absolutely vomit-inducing. And you have Trump, who, as you have mentioned, has really taken this rhetoric, resurrected it, dusted it off, and then executed this top-ranking general just reminds me of the fact that this goes along with him also pardoning the worst war criminals who were singled out during the Iraq war, the people who were charged with just wantonly executing civilians, little girls in hijab, um, people just walking simply that posed no threat to American soldiers. Yes, this was something that was commonplace, but the fact that these people who were actually prosecuted for the worst crimes were pardoned by this man, sending a clear message to everyone, all U.S. troops, all military personnel stationed all over the world, that you can do whatever you want to Muslims means- or any people of color—rape, torture, kill them—you will be protected. This act of aggression, this act of blatant war on um, Soleimani, is just goes along with so many other things that are just absolutely terrifying. I mean, this is this is akin to like executing. The second in command, you know, I mean that this is a really, really devastating thing. As you mentioned, this Iranian general has been a really important figure in Iranian society for decades. Um, He has been blamed um, for all the deaths of of US military personnel in Iraq. It's something that's been going on for a long time. Um, And the fact that people immediately went out in the streets are immediately calling bullshit on the corporate media is very encouraging. But I really fear what will happen next because Trump is an unpredictable figure. He's an attention-seeking, psychopathic child. I, it's really, really hard to read him, but I think people have been reading him wrong, where they've been giving him credit and saying, oh, Trump you know, is the least—he's um, he, he's capable of not being puppeted by the neocons, and that's why he's good. I think it's the opposite. I think he's the biggest puppet that's ever existed in the Oval Office and that whatever forces have been wanting and egging on this war with Iran— he is the most likely candidate to bring that forward. And it doesn't matter how he came to this decision, the fact is he did it. And now we have to figure out how are we going to stop it, how are we going to combat these narratives, deconstruct the propaganda and um, prevent an all-out war from taking place because anyone who analyzes the situation knows that this is going to be much more catastrophic than a war with Iraq. Iran has been preparing war with the U.S. for decades right i mean 1979 ever since the islamic revolution overthrew the shah um they have they have the u.s has been engaging in constant subversion and undermining of the iranian sovereignty and iran has been preparing to retaliate and been preparing to deal with just that and especially if we're talking about um you know the ships surrounding iran however this attack can and will take place iran is prepared to retaliate with their own attack, and it and it could escalate very quickly. And it's time that we take this very seriously and shut down the streets, shut down the government, and and do whatever we can as people, as privileged American citizens, to not sit back while another devastating war takes place just because we're not going to be directly affected by it. We can't just protest once. We can't just say things on social media. This is the time that we need to show up. And we need to show up in in strong numbers because we can't let another Iraq happen and we can't let another Iraq on steroids happen because the world can't fucking afford it. And it's going to be our fault. Um, The complicity and compliance of the American public to go along with this. We've been kind of talking about like the ability of Trump to do this and and we thought that we were being hyperbolic and that we were being fear-mongering. At a certain point, we were like, well... You know, maybe we should stop pretending like this is like on the precipice of war, and it just seems like here we are. You know, like like you said, everyone kind of has egg on their face that we should have kind of known that it was going to escalate to this point, given all the other crazy things he's done. But the question is, what can we do now?
1: I think part of what made it maybe made us not as hyper vigilant against this as we should have been is that it's it's come in waves. So these like strong. Waves have come in and then they've sort of receded. And this is the strongest wave we've seen ever. So I need, to, I need to say that one more time. This is the strongest propaganda wave and escalation we have ever seen in Iran in our lifetimes. So mm-hmm. that's really, really dangerous. That can't be sugar-coated. You can't say that Hillary would have already been nuking Iran right now. None of those stupid thought experiments matter right now. And it still takes away, or it sort of ascribes positive intent to Trump, that he was somehow slowing this down. Everything he's done has shown the opposite of that. The only thing he did so far that was in any way a de-escalation was not following through on his threats to like kill Iranians after that drone was shot down. I mean, that's it. And everybody celebrated him for that. And, yeah, and acted right. like Everyone he was a humanitarian. It's like, dude, no. Like you gotta be really hyper vigilant right now because we are on the precipice of war. Do not give him even an inch. I mean, it's fucking weird that people still feel compelled to do that. And especially right now, man, if you've gone into denial or if you've gotten mad at Abby and I for saying that Trump is, you know, could turn into a full blown neocon warmonger at any time. I, I hope now you realize um, how right we were. I mean, I really hope now you realize that you can no longer sugarcoat Trump, pretend like he's an anti-interventionist and look how cool that is. I just hope it really sinks in now that this is no longer the time to do that. And we need to put, you know, we need to go full bore against this war and against this administration.
0: And all we can hope for is that the anti-war movement will be resurrected. This long dormant anti-war movement that was really vigilant during the Iraq war. It needs to be resurrected. It needs to be resurrected in full force, and we need to see Trump taken out of office. Um, and of course, the Senate should impeach him for this. This is a blatant war crime in so many ways. The fact that he's just merely threatening war crimes to obliterate historic cultural sites mm-hmm. um, that are just of you know Persian culturally significant things that are ancient, right? Um, This is an ancient society of tens of millions of people who are completely innocent, right? And he's not distinguishing the fact that Iranians themselves are completely innocent actors. And he's just literally threatening to kill Iranians that have nothing to do with their government. And this is is grounds for removal right there. The Senate's not going to do that. Of course, Congress is going to largely go along with them. As Mike mentioned, the second that Americans die, we're going to see a lot less resistance and a lot more compliance from the establishment much more than we're seeing now. And they're going to say, well, we have to do something right. And so that's when we need to stand strong um, and stand together Yes. to debunk these narratives, to not let the left be splintered by COINTELPRO um, fronts and to just, again, unify in the best way possible to get Trump out of office, to, um, try to restore some sanity and inter- international cooperation because that's what we need right now. We need to use the U.S. as a tool for peace and its power and wealth around the world to uh, bring some sort of peaceful resolution to this complete and total madness.
1: Absolutely. And just for, just another angle to the total madness aspect of it, people in Iran, you know, I've been talking to a few people, they don't want Iran to respond to this in like a, a, an escalated way. I mean, that because I think people there know that what this is about. This is about trying to goad the Iranian military and government into some kind of escalation. It really is the classic Jack Palance thing that the American empire always does. And, you know, I'm actually surprised in a way that Trump isn't just unilaterally just deciding to strike now in a way. Um, but the classic way we've always done it, and you know this, Abby, is it's like in the old West, the sheriff throws the gun on the ground right in front of the criminal and says, pick up the gun, pick it up. And as soon as the guy picks it up, he gets killed. So that's kind of the point here. And I think we can't forget that, that this is designed to to Iran into an escalation and to do something to us. You know, what you're saying, if an American soldier gets killed, that's when everything will flip and we will go fully down this roller coaster. I would I would suspect that on some level, there are strategists in the Pentagon, in the Trump administration, who literally want that to happen because that's their green light. I mean, that's how dark this shit gets. And I think that that's... We're already on our way down that track right now. I hope to Absolutely. God that people in the Iranian government know this too, and they should, and do not fall into this trap because I do think a trap is being laid out for them. And I hope to God for the sake of the Iranian people and, you know, everybody on this planet, that that does not happen. And I'm not in any way saying that the Iranian government would be to blame because this is absolutely designed to goad them into a conflict. We've done everything. I mean, this would be like Iran literally assassinating one of the joint chiefs of staff, like in broad daylight.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: At a U.S. airport or like an airport like in Canada or something. I mean, and And what do you think the U.S. would do as a response to that? Oh, we would fucking, we would instantly fucking nuke a country if that happened. Instant. I mean, we'd probably use like a tactical nuke or a Moab or something first, and be like,
0: yeah, the mini nuke that Trump is already investing in. That's something that he. That's something that I projected a long time ago that he was going to use on Iran, or um, speculating to use because he is investing in mini nukes right now. Yeah. And all the science, all the
1: signs are pointing to this going in a very dangerous direction. I mean, even just the defense mm-hmm. contractor stocks, this has been all documented. Alan McLeod in mint um, press news did an article, I think yesterday showing how there's a 7% increase just with Lockheed
0: Martin. Since all this shit started, think about how dark and scary that shit is. Defense contractors invested in the stocks, um, preempting the strike. Yeah. It's almost like there was someone privy within the industry of the strikes, which is like a legal insider trading oh, oh people need to go to jail for that. Dude,
1: that's even crazy too. That's absolutely crazy. And it's almost like a snake eating its own tail. It's like an infinite loop. First of all, we this all started over a contractor who got killed in Iraq. Like what company was he from? Maybe he was from one of these defense right? companies, right? Let's just assume he was, yep. just for sake of argument. So you have a contractor from the military industrial complex who gets killed, and then all this conflict escalation just explodes, and then the defense contractor stocks go up, kind of indirectly reserves <laughs> a result from a U.S. military contractor getting killed. It's so fucked up when you think about it. I mean, it's all, and I, and I don't know how cynical this really gets, but I mean, it really does, you, you almost zoom out from it, and you're like, is this shit just all on purpose? like to just destabilize the region and goad Iran into a conflict. It kind of seems that way when you look at it from a certain well, angle. Well, that's
0: why we need to take ourselves out of the, these kind of trappings and look at the bigger picture, which is we don't have the right to be there in the first place. We shouldn't be there in the first place. It doesn't matter. Like this whole American contractor being killed. Why is an American contractor there? Yeah. Why is the U.S. military still there? How many American contractors US are US even still right? over there? Yeah, the U.S. doesn't have the right to kill anyone anywhere. All right. So uh, you have to get in that kind of mindset because everything else just seems completely ridiculous once you put the U.S. on equal footing with the rest of the world that the U.S. uh, is at war with.
1: Yeah. And even just this angle of ISIS. I mean, yeah, we you know, there's definitely been some gains made in removing the territory of ISIS. But if that's always going to be acceptable for the left like people on the left to be like well we had you know we need to like get rid of isis because they're like proxies of the imperialist zionist nexus or whatever it's like we need to get around that and and remove that bullshit narrative too that it's acceptable to be bombing isis bombing any country for any reason gives us an excuse to stay there and to occupy it and to extend our imperial footprint so i don't i'm not going to buy into that goddamn narrative
0: and it also breeds extremism. I mean, the fact that there's a major unification in Iran right now, even if Soleimani was ha- widely hated, widely loved, it doesn't matter at this point. Iran is pretty unified. We saw the millions strong out in the streets for his funeral. You just look those at like were, those one. Those were all
1: fake, Abby. Didn't you see that? Was yeah, those CGI. were all
0: forced at gunpoint. Yeah, force at gunpoint, just like Maduro's voters are forced at gunpoint and given bread to vote. Yeah, some crazy Um,
1: Bellingcat guy literally did like a Photoshop breakdown where he rendered out individual human-sized people and like put them all on the bridge and like made like a giant graphic showing how it was only 40,000 or something. It's so fucking weird, dude. What?
0: Well, it's like, how did
1: the video exist then? It's a video. So basically, if you break down this whole thread... (laughs) it's essentially saying that the video had to have been uh, faked, but there's nobody like you would have had to have like Hollywood level, like budget of special effects to fake a video like this.
0: These people are so desperate. These people are, it's the same thing everywhere. Yeah. It's Bolivia. It's, it's Venezuela. It's Iran. It's anywhere that's deemed a U.S. enemy. None of the people have agency. They're all puppeted or they're all forced at gunpoint. Right. It's all completely insane. What these think tank regime change operators are putting out there. But my point is that it breeds and fosters extremism. And every time you bomb anyone in the Middle East, whether it's ISIS or military age males in the vicinity of a strike zone, those people are going to grow up. I'm sorry, the survivors of whoever these people's families are and grow up hating the great Satan, the U.S. And that's that's how these cycles continue. That's why the war on terror has created uh, exponentially more terrorism in the world. That's why ISIS is a thing. It came out of the vacuum of Iraq and Libya. So it's absurd to think that we should still continue to bomb quote-unquote terrorists. It's, It's absurd to continue to be trapped in this framework of perpetuating a war on terrorism in general. You know, we need to bring all troops home from all over the fucking world and stop occupying the goddamn world and stop killing people. Stop killing people, seriously, because it doesn't matter if it's ISIS or not. It's going to continue to breed the hatred Against us. Look at just the sons of of Soleimani and the um, the Iraqi militia guy. I forget his name who died. It's like they're they're sitting there sobbing, mourning their fathers, and the millions of Iranians out in the streets who are who are they? You know, you see them chanting in the subway, "Down with America." That's the sentiment right now in Iran.
1: But Abby, Iranians so detest Soleimani. going continue. I'm seeing the hashtag on Twitter <laughs> right now. Number one hashtag, Iranians detest Soleimani. What are you talking about?
0: Yeah, it's, it's sick. It's sick how, you know, the right kind of Iranians are platformed to say like, no, this is actually a good thing. Look, um... All of this is bad and it's all going to come back to bite us in the ass. And this is this is what blowback is. And not that that's the reason why we shouldn't do these things. Obviously, the reason why we shouldn't do these things is because these people are our brothers and sisters who we have more in common with than the people who are ruling over us in this country. But aside from that, just the absurdity of how obviously this is inevitably going to cause blowback on on the world. Yeah, blowback
1: on the yeah. world. I mean, it, it, it could you know, and, and we've been saying this about Syria for a while, and it's a miracle in a way that it hasn't, but something like an attack on Iran and a war being waged there could lead to World War Three. I mean, I think that you, you can see how that would be very, very possible if we did something like that. I don't want to leave people with too negative of a of an impression, but I mean, this could get really, really dark really fast. And if we think, you know, we hear this narrative all the time that you know, it'll make Iraq look like a cakewalk. Sure. I mean, just in terms of the amount of carnage, destruction, and death in that region of the world, yeah, it would be it would. But I'm much more concerned about like a full scale escalation into a World War Three like scenario. Not just making the Iraq war look a cakewalk. I mean, it'll basically make the Iran War look like the beginning of Terminator two. I just I just really want people to take this very seriously. Um it, it's not just to protect the lives of people in Iran, our brothers and sisters there. It's also to protect their brothers and sisters all across the planet. This is a serious thing. There are still thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons on this planet. Only a fraction of them are used. We wouldn't be able to grow plants on this planet for decades because of the nuclear fallout. Sorry that's so depressing and dark, but I just felt like I had to mention that specifically right now.
0: Absolutely. And if you want to get inspired, watch Mike Preisner's speech at the anti-war demonstration that was um, just last Saturday in LA. It was very, very incredible, inspiring speech. And get involved, get involved because being a part of the movement on the ground brings you out of this kind of disempowerment, disconnected feeling that we all have, just sitting kind of at home and feeling like powerless and that we're not going to be able to do anything about this. It really is inspiring, is empowering to see so many people being organized, linking up with each other finding out how they can build these coalitions together because the bigger amount of pressure that we put on um, on the government is is the way that we can stop this and putting our bodies in the streets and not living comfortably here through yet another US military escalation that could potentially be cataclysmic I mean I hate to be hyperbolic or fear-mongering but like this is a very very dangerous situation and I think the most dangerous situation we've seen in in the last 15 years, Robbie. And we have to be serious about that and take it seriously. And it's up to all of us to politically educate each other, dismantle the propaganda, combat these toxic narratives, and be uh, steadfast, steadfast in our opposition. Get involved, link up with groups, link up with each other. Thank you so much for listening to Media Roots Radio. Um, Thank you to Mike Preisner again, follow him, get involved with Eyes Left Pod. And donate to Media Roots Radio. We have um, we have special tiers where you can access our movies and stuff if you if you donate a certain level. So check that out on Patreon.com/slash Media Roots Radio, and subscribe and spread the word. Uh, support alternative media. We are out there um, on the front lines, trying to report the truth, trying to debunk the propaganda, and we're gonna not you know we're gonna keep going. We're not gonna stop, and we all have to be a part of this.
1: Very well put. And uh, yeah, um, get out there, be active. Don't stop pushing back on this. Don't let your guard down. And, um, you know, just I, I would say for now, just ignore the people and don't focus too much energy on them. The people who are still trying to paint Trump as an anti interventionist, they're lying to you at this point. I mean, it's not even just that they're brainwashed or they're trying to hold on to a narrative, they're actively lying to you right now. So seriously, just put. Just put blind spots on, just power forward. Don't pay attention to those motherfuckers. Um, They are actually doing serious damage right now and serious harm to the resistance against this war. And we need to ignore the fuck out of them. Um, And I think we do need to focus on the actual open propagandists who are pushing the hardest for this war. Um, and we need, to, we need to remember who all those people are, and they will forever have a black mark on their careers for, for the rest of their lives, just like the people who propagandize for the Iraq War, like Eli Lake. He wrote articles back in 2003. He will never live those down. He is a neocon Iraq War propagandist, and he will forever be known as one. And all the people now doing the same thing for this, they will forever be known as neocon Iran War propagandists who need to have their careers ruined every day outed for being part of this military industrial complex machine. So I think that that's important too, but for now resist it as much as you can and just remember who those people are.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening. And uh, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash media roots radio. We're preparing to do a live stream 10 year anniversary episode soon of this podcast. And we will post all those details Uh, to you on social media so yeah look out for that we will talk to you soon happy new year everybody
0: peace happy new year